If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who is tired of living through history and would like to request that we live through a couple boring years that historians can ignore. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is one of my favorite historians, John Meacham, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of books such as American Lion, Franklin and Winston, and Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. He's the host of a new podcast from Cadence 13 called Hope Through History. John, we need a lot of hope. It's about the history and trying times in American history, including the 1918 flu pandemic. That's 1918, not 1917, as President Trump likes to say, the Great Depression and World War II, and how we came through those moments as a unified nation. John, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate it. So, so much to talk about. I don't know where to begin, but let's start with the, with this idea of hope through history. And I just saw Matthew McConaughey doing the same thing on the Twitter. He's now doing a whole thing around hope. We've got lots of celebrities talking about hope, but let's talk about it in the historical context, not in cool videos of people with puppies. Like, let's talk about <laughs> where we are right now um, in hope through history. Well, Matthew McConaughey and I are often as one, so yes. I, I like yeah. I like to see that. Um, look, the story of the country is not some nostalgic fairy tale. Uh, it, there's not a once upon a time in American life. There's not a happily ever after. There is, in fact, a perennial struggle of challenges that can seem insuperable in real time, but actually end up to some extent, being overcome. Some are not. You know, Langston Hughes taught us about dreams deferred. But some dreams are realized. And we've been doing this more or less since 1787 uh, when we fought out a constitution that was based on the fundamental insight that we were going to screw things up far more often than we we got them right. And we've done everything we can to prove the founders correct ever since. Uh, as Winston Churchill once said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing once we've exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> and we, we've done that. Uh, we're here. We're fighting it out. It is, I think, ahistorical to pretend that the past was somehow simpler. Their problems seemed uniquely oppressive, which is a phrase of Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s. Our problems seem uniquely oppressive. Both can be true. My own view is that if we don't look back, we foreclose the possibility 
of learning from the only data set that actually offers us a cogent way to look forward. That's not to say that if you look back and see 1918 or the polio vaccine or World War II or the civil rights movement or suffrage, whatever it is, that somehow or another, you will then learn these three steps that if you program them into right, your, exactly. your Or the G- AIDS crisis yeah. or, or any of them. So let's, t- let's go back and talk about that because one of the, I was actually, this was a discussion I was having with my kids last night. Um, I'm seeing my kids a lot these days. Um, and what, you know, they're How's getting, that going? Uh, How's that going for you? You know, great actually, but they're going through a lot of grief, I think. I don't know how else to put it. They're going through a lot of trying to pretend it's not a big deal when it is indeed for them. And they're very lucky, but it's still yeah. difficult. And so one of the things... You know, they had been disturbed a while ago by those pictures of the people in Wisconsin and what are they doing and how's that going? And I and I said, this is so unusual. And I said, actually, the Whiskey Rebellion. Like, I'm trying to think of something. Yeah. I'm trying to trying yeah. to historically give them a sense that these things have happened and we've gotten through them and whenever they feel like this is never happening. So let's talk about some of those unique times in history. The Whiskey Rebellion, but people don't know, was they were trying to tax whiskey. And yeah. uh, Hamilton was very critical to quashing that. And it was very dangerous to our nascent republic, as I recall, from yep. my historical teaching, um, and, and was people that just didn't want to be taxed and didn't want government or central government, which is the same issues we face today. But let's talk about these trying times, uh, we hope through history. Let's start, I guess, with the fluid pandemic um, that happened in 1918. It was the wages of globalization. Uh, we thought it came from Spain. It didn't. It probably came from the United States. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had waited as long as he could to get into the First World War. Monday, April 2nd, 1917, he announces uh, that he's going to declare war or ask Congress for a declaration of war. The influenza breaks out in army camps. We take it to Europe. It comes back in an even more exacerbated form. If you read through the newspapers of the time, which blessedly you don't have to do because you have people like me to dork out for you, we did social distancing. Movie theaters were closed. Movie releases were delayed. Some schools let out. The Chicago public transportation system banned smoking for the first time on their uh, the elevated trains because it was a respiratory pandemic. The only answer to the influenza pandemic, which killed far more people than we think almost 675,000 Americans, imagine that, was what we're doing now. Uh, The phrase quarantine uh, actually comes from the 40 days that sailors were asked to spend away from the population when they were coming out of the Black Sea to Europe during the 14th century during the Black Death. And so the solutions we're being offered by the medical professionals are tried and true. They are based on history. They are not based on wishful thinking. And what I would say to to your kids and what I say to mine, I have uh, 18, 15, and 12, um, is this is a, you know, you're gonna get 40% of the country to be wrong about almost everything. 40% of the country never voted for Franklin Roosevelt. White supremacy, I live in the South, I come from the South. Otherwise, perfectly, seemingly decent, upstanding people were complicit in unimaginable discrimination the day before yesterday. You know, in, in my lifetime, 
we've had riots. We've denied people the right to vote. Just the, right before I was born was the, the great high water mark of, of the civil rights movement. And one of the things that I think is so important is sometimes when I make the point I just made, which is, you know what, we, we stumble through uh, what uh, George Eliot has a great line in Middlemarch. She talks about the dim lights and tangled circumstance of the world. You know, we come through that. Well, I'm a white, boringly heterosexual Episcopalian. Things tend to work out for me. Right, they tend uh, to. I've noticed that. <laughs> many, many of us who are not that have noticed that. Right. But here you go. If people like me, it seems to me, don't make this case, then we're being derelict in our duty because what history tells us is that if you want, in Theodore Parker's phrase, a phrase Dr. King used, a phrase uh, President Obama likes to use, that the arc of a moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, it doesn't bend toward justice if there aren't people insisting that it swerve toward justice. That's the dialectic. And so if you feel strongly about something in the public square. My message is not, don't worry about it because it's all going to work out. My message is, get in there, stand in the tradition of Frederick Douglass and Alice Paul and John Lewis and force the rest of us to pay attention. That's the way progress comes in America. Not when the powerful decide to do something. Not when Lyndon Johnson does the Voting Rights Act or Woodrow Wilson decides to support the suffrage amendment. That's not where change comes. Change comes first. It's when the powerless convince the powerful to do the right thing. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you're saying hope through history. And a lot of the history you're talking about, despite the fact that we emerged from it, it's not hopeful for a lot of people. And the same thing is happening in this pandemic. You know, uh, New York Magazine just had a cover, rich corona, poor corona, um, and, and all kinds of things. So history is sort of the lens you see it through is it's always been taught in in classes that I've taken as sort of a victory over, a victory over. When you're trying to go through hope through history, talk a little bit about what you mean when you have this podcast, this idea of finding hope in these, often really from slavery on up, including the decimation of you were talking, we were talking earlier about your book on Jackson, the decimation of other people. So talk a little bit about this idea of why hope is the way forward for okay. everybody. Well, crisis itself, the word crisis is from the Greek. Hippocrates used it uh, most significantly for our purposes. Crisis initially meant a moment of decision in the course of a health crisis. So it was the moment in the condition when you lived or you died. And I think my, my, my view of hope is that when you look particularly at the American story and you look at crises where we have not fully applied the implications, the logical, compelling, self-evident implications of what was the most important sentence ever originally rendered in English, in my opinion, Thomas Jefferson, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, a sentence, by the way, written on a laptop desk made by the hands of an enslaved person at Monticello. So you don't have to look very hard in American life for irony. You mentioned Andrew Jackson, the great champion of the common man, as long as you were white and a man. But here's the thing. Do we today in 2020 
for all our sins, omissions, shortcomings, for all of our fallen nature, our frail nature, our fallibility, are more people happier and more invested in this experiment in the sense that it is the best option for moving forward in an incredibly complicated, multi-ethnic, globalized, continental nation? And the answer, I think, is yes. You and I have a lot of friends who live in Manhattan, and before every presidential election, they say, if the Republican wins, by God, we're moving to Canada. But, you know, the traffic's still pretty bad up there. People tend to stay. They tend to fight it out. And so it's really almost a utilitarian argument. It's benthamite. What produces the greatest good for the greatest number? And so far, by and large, the American experiment has produced great good for a great number. So what is it? What are the moments we look back on that we tend to celebrate, we tend to commemorate? In the last 60, 70 years, that's Selma, that's Stonewall, that's the fall of the Berlin Wall. And those moments are ones in which we have reached out as opposed to clenching our fists. So what do we do now, right now? Because it seems like, you know, you think every day it's going to not turn around from a health point of view because a, a virus is what it is. A virus is a virus. How do you imagine to get to that level of hope? Because I just, you know, the other day I thought, oh, so it's going to, the, the, the mood is going to turn around. The weather is going to get nicer. I know it sounds crazy, but it does lift people's moods. And then you open the paper and it's just as bad as ever, just like the concept and not just the news of the virus, which I think is just what, again, what it is. But how do you get to that level of hope? What is the journey that you've seen in these specific events where it happens? Is it sort of this valley before Whoa. Uh, this yeah. valley of death kind of thing? I mean, we look, if you were an African-American and you lived within five miles of where I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, for a hundred years, you faced a legal, prevalent, and generally accepted system of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Right here, within the, li- within the lifetime of most of the people we know, many of the people we know. And that was dismantled with some enduring problems about policing, about incarceration, about economic equality, about economic opportunity, about health outcomes, environmental outcomes, disproportionate vulnerability. But when in a period from about 1954 to about 1966, a serious, seriously minded, carefully thought out, unimaginably courageous movement of people forced a change that would have been largely unthinkable even a year or two before. The Democratic Party gnawed itself apart over civil rights as recently as 1948. So, again, just because we've come through difficult times before doesn't mean we're going to do it now. But if you accept intellectually that segregation was a, an enduring crisis of opportunity and evil, and in our lifetimes that has been ameliorated, then 
that does create hope, it seems to me. And what it required was the people who were most affected steadily, courageously appealing to the conscience and the pocketbooks of the country. So if we have that example so close to hand, it seems to me, in terms of this particular health crisis, you know, you've got, I remember thinking about March 10th or so, Lord, please don't let this become a partisan pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Let this not. It has become. And within five minutes, uh, it did. If you believe in the science, if you believe in the lesson of the influenza pandemic, which is you follow the facts, then all you can do is do it yourself and speak up and hope that other people do. If the other people are on the wrong side of this, there's not much you can do except continue to bear witness, which may seem like a soft answer, but what was Rosa Parks doing? Mm-hmm. What was John Lewis doing? What was Sakharov doing uh, in the Soviet Union? So there are these individual stories of people who insisted that we had to do the right thing. And those were long, lonely years. So this is, you know, when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, Dr. King went to the funeral in uh, Washington and he was standing on the street as the case went by. And one of his associates said, you know, this is really going to get the civil rights bill through. And King turned to him and said, we're a 10-day nation. <laughs> we're down to about a 10-minute nation. Well, we're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with John Meacham. He's the host of a new podcast, Hope Through History, but he's also well-known as an author and a historian of Pulitzer Prize-winning books uh, such as American Lion, Franklin and Winston, and Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. When we get back, we're going to talk about the 10-minute nation and what it means for hope for our citizens when we get back. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. We're here with John Meachin. He's the host of a new podcast called Hope Through History. He's obviously a very famous historian, writer of many books on history, which I do want to talk about what he's working on now. But um, 
talk about the 10-minute nation. Like, I, I, it's something I talk about a lot, the twitchy nature of our society. You see everything being, you know, Trump is sort of the, the top of this game, that everything's being done through Twitter, the reaction, the action, and everyone's living in that world. What does that do to history if we are, uh, we were a 10-day nation, as King said, and now we're 10 second, I would say 10 second, not a 10 minute. Yeah, I'm trying to be optimistic. Uh, <laughs> so we're both playing our assigned roles. Um, it makes it incredibly difficult to have large, sustained public action. Uh, it's hard to imagine President Kennedy in his inaugural quoted St. Paul talking about the Cold Wars, the long twilight struggle, and saying that we had to be patient in tribulation. Hard to imagine the country having the focus and attention span to undertake something as complicated and costly as the Cold War. We're having a, and that would be, it was, this would all be theoretical if it weren't for the pandemic. And here we have, we're being asked for a certain number of months, not necessarily years, to make certain sacrifices. And as we could see, we're having an incredibly difficult time doing it. However, and this is the hopeful part of this. In the 10-second vernacular, in that cacophony that we all tend to live in, we feel as though we're not going to be able to do it. But then you step back and you look at the the polling, which is interesting, and there are there is a partisan divide, but there's still a significant number of folks who get it. And they don't necessarily live in the echo chamber of Fox and Friends to the Oval Office, uh, to MAGA, and then to all the oppositional forces that have taken their stand. So you can be fancy about this, but I don't. I, I think it's a pretty straightforward thing. We know what works to keep the fatalities, the deaths, somewhat in control. That will keep us healthy. No one's particularly puzzled by what this will be. It is inconvenient. It is economically cataclysmic for many people. It is emotionally taxing, as you said, in your own household. And yet, this is what we're being asked to do for a certain amount of time. And the 10-day nation should be able to do that. The 10-second nation doesn't want to. Do you imagine what impacts things like social media and technology have had on history? I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, you did have these great, you were talking about great speeches and great moments in history that sort of played a narrative that plays out in a wider space. And now it's so accelerated. And I think I wrote that every this it weaponizes everything, it accelerates everything, accelerates every trend. As a historian, when you look at this, and I'd love to get your sense, like, how are you going, how are historians of the future going to figure out what's happening? especially as it's happening so quickly and in such small little bites and 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 twitchy manner in a twitchy manner. The phrase you just used I think is is the important one. It accelerates. It exacerbates and accelerates. Uh I first of all we don't know the answer yet because we're at the beginning of that drama. But I I do have a slightly counterintuitive view of this which is speed is relative and you know this uh technology's impact is relative. So if you were in the 18th and 19th century and really the the wages of Gutenberg were only reaching you uh, in the interior of North America for the first time and you were getting a newspaper once a week or once a month, 
that was the information superhighway, right? My God, there's a newspaper. And they were entirely partisan uh, until the early 20th century. The period of consensus that we romanticize, although it was, if it was such a consensus, how did it create John Birch, the Bull Connor, uh, and lead to Vietnam, is really the exception, not the rule. The age of Cronkite that we think of was a very brief moment, really from the end of World War II until the early 90s, which historically is, you know, it's 40 years, 50 years or so, but that's only about 25%, 20% of, of the life of the nation. And so what we have to figure out is to what extent, A, did we have truly have a common set of facts in the period we lionize? And did that actually create better public outcomes? So let's think. It gave us Vietnam, so that's not so great. It did give us the civil rights movement, but it also gave us the reaction to that. It gave us an expanded role for women. Uh, it has given us a remarkable when you think about the social science, a remarkable new openness and acceptance of non-traditional identity. But did that common set of facts, is that a causal relation or is it, does it just so happen? What I think is, and, and, I, and I've been a skeptic on this, um, the idea that our divisions are structural as opposed to seasonal. I may mm -hmm. well be wrong. Meaning the technology isn't causing them, it's just there it's just the latest technology here as yeah, opposed to exactly. the radio or the television or and the and the division and it also presupposes that uh, there was a more there was some era of consensus and we are no longer in that. And that's I, I so here's my dork theory, which I will try out on you. Right. What I'm about to say- I love a dork theory. It's either an 800-word op-ed or an 800-page book. I haven't <laughs> decided which. Um, oh, dear. But here you go. From 1933 to 2017, so I've spent, we, our conversation has been about how things are kind of the same, right? Trump is as if George Wallace or Strom Thurmond had actually gone all the way. Uh, and in 1968, George Wallace- Maybe Aaron Burr with Twitter, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, and look at, um, and he shot somebody. So- um, uh, He shot someone important, but go ahead. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Rather important. Uh, but Trump is the fullest manifestation of perennial American forces. Mm -hmm. That's the historically based argument. Okay, so, but here's the other way of looking at it, which is contrary to what I just said. 1933 to 2017 could be seen as a kind of figurative conversation between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. You had two central questions that confronted us, the relative role of the state in the marketplace and the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And you could be at the 10-yard line or the other 10-yard line but you are on the same field. This is not a sequential chapter in that conversation. So Barack Obama and Franklin Roosevelt actually governed more or less in an ethos that would be recognizable to both. I've blown this by Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama, and they all agree. Um, so I have some, some cover on this. 
Trump doesn't make sense in that way. And so my view is not that there was a liberal consensus that has broken apart. And we have, you and I have lots of mutual friends who see sort of 1964, 1968, that there was this moment, but then it fell, it fell apart. I actually think the consensus was far more contentious, even at the height of the consensus, than we tend to remember. What this election is about, and I try not to be hyperbolic about this, but I believe this to be true. If the incumbent president is reelected, much of what I've said about the resilience of the country will be fundamentally weakened and arguably dismissible. If Vice President Biden wins, then that is about as clean a win for this argument as you can think of. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who was the chairman of the Tennessee Democratic Party in the age of Obama, which is like being the radar operator of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I mean, a, who has a great line, Gray Sasser. He said, basically, Trump wants to take us back to 1955 and Biden wants to take us back to 1965, uh -huh. which is exactly right. Uh -huh. And now there's a whole generation, a whole world that would rather not do either, right? They would rather right. move forward. Yes, most of us, but go ahead. Right, but if you had to pick between those two years, you want 65. Yeah, yeah, I would. Not everybody, not everybody would. But we're talking about, but here's the thing, but that's an interesting question. So who are who is the not everybody? My mother. Is your mother vote for Trump? I think she did. Wow, where we does she live? Speak. Not where she should be if she's voting for Trump. Okay. My brother, same thing, lots um, of people. But that's, okay, but you're talking about... They hated Hillary. They, it's a Hillary-hating thing. Right. So I think well, it might there you be. go. But that's another important point. Presidential elections are not referenda. People like me always say, this is a referendum. No, it's not. It's a choice. Nobody came to the country and said, hey, you want Donald Trump to be president? That wasn't the issue. It was which of these two people do you want? Yeah. Yeah, she can be she can be moved. So can my brother. I mean, it depends. She can be they can be moved for sure on this off this one. You want one more dork thing? Sure, one more dork thing. Okay, and I, I got a whole bag of them, uh, okay. but I'll just pull one more out. So I was trying to think, what is what's the metric of bipartisanship, right? So you just said your mother and your brother are persuadable. That's a vanishingly small number of Americans, but it's about ten percent. And here's how I get to the ten percent: it's not who says they're independents or whatever. So I tried to think, what would be an actual data point for this? And it occurred to me that if you are a self-identified Democrat or Republican, and if you cross the aisle in a presidential election to vote for the other person, that's probably the best metric, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. we, have, we have data from 1952 forward. So in Eisenhower got about 40% of Democrats. Johnson got 40 percent of Republicans in 1964. 1972, Nixon gets 40 percent of Democrats. And then the numbers collapse. But they collapse because most of those Democrats in 72 became Republicans. Mm -hmm. So in our time, more or less the last quarter century, nine percent of Democrats told pollsters in 2000 on Election Day that they had voted for George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. which is what makes the difference in that election. 13% uh, of Republicans told pollsters on election day 2008 that they had voted for President Obama. So 9, 13, so call it 
there's 10% of people who, depending on where they are, that's the real balance of power in the country. Mm-hmm. So when you think about this, I want to, when we get back, I want to talk about where you think this country is going and hope through future, I guess, not through history, and how you would write about this era if you were John Meacham 100 years from now. We're here with John Meacham, the host of the new podcast, Hope Through History. He's also the uh, best-selling author of many, many books on all kinds of presidents and people in power, including American Lion, which, which I joked with him, I have been listening to on Audible for three years now. <laughs> That said, I've been reading Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton for five years or whatever long it's been out. Anyway, we'll be back after this. Here's today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at She Can STEM. A message from the Ad Council. We're here with John Meacham, the host of a new podcast, Hope Through History. Obviously, he's a very well-known historian, writes lots of books. John, what are you working on now? What is your focus besides this dork idea you have? I mean, when you have this many dork ideas, yeah, you have a lot of. It can be kind of it can be kind of consuming. Uh, the book I'm working on, I'm working on two books. Uh, one, which will be out before the other, is a biography of John Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, fighting cancer. And I actually believe is a Christian saint in classical terms, mm-hmm. uh, someone who was willing to die for an idea. He certainly is. And um, I wanted to tell that story because it's so countercultural. It was then and now it's almost, at least then it was somewhat imaginable. And now it's just, you know, be, totally beyond our kin. And then I'm doing a, uh, a book that you will spend 10 years trying to get okay, through. Uh, so I've got a decade plan for you, which is a biography of Dolly and James Madison together. Oh, wow. That will take me 10 years. I'll probably be <laughs> dead by then. But your last book was called The Soul of America. Um, and you were talking about appealing again, because you're a positive leaning person, are better angels. Again, this is something you, that, that you come back to, the battle for our better angels. Where are we on, in that battle right now, from your perspective, as we move into the election? And what are the big risks? Is it Russian interference? Is it partisanship? When you look at this election compared to so many elections of the past, and there's been problems with every election, I think, probably since the beginning of the election having here in this country. But what do you think of is critically important? If you were looking back at this, what would you think you would be— focused on. The thing that I think is so important right now is to what extent are we willing to give a little bit, not much, but actually accept that the team we had already picked might be wrong and the team that we tend to dislike might have something right. Uh, I had an old boss, Charlie Peters, the editor of the Washington Monthly, founder of the Washington Monthly, who used to define intellectual honesty as the ability to say something good about the bad guys and bad about the good guys. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the angels take flight right now. And it doesn't have to be an existential, Manichaean, full-on road to Damascus moment. It doesn't have to be, oh my God, the other side is so right, I have been so wrong, woe is me. It can be as simple as, let's say you're a conservative Republican, you couldn't stand Senator Clinton, you took a flyer on this guy, but by God, you can see that 
this pandemic has brought home yet again that the temperament and the character of the person we send to that desk does matter. And you know what? I'm not in this anymore. Uh, That would be a better angel winning out. And so a huge amount depends on what happens in, in November. I don't think I would have written the book I wrote in 2018, which Mm -hmm. was basically, again, Trump is perennial, uh, a full manifestation of this, but we will come through it if he'd won the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Um, Because? Because it would have been, that would have been. Then that would have been a majority did think that. Right. Uh, Right. And I don't think a majority, I mean, he's never had a majority, right? He's never been Mm -hmm. above 50% on anything. And so- it's not that it's a fluke, but it is, I think, a fever. And fevers either break or they kill us. Mm-hmm. And my bet is it breaks, but I'm not sure. And I'm certainly not arguing. The one criticism I got from that book, and I didn't get much of it, but uh, some people I respect raised it with me privately, was that it was too optimistic. Mm-hmm. but not maybe, but it was, I followed the data on reconstruction, suffrage, the role of immigration, intervention, isolationism, and civil rights. And the data in all of those moments suggests that enough Americans decided to be open as opposed to closed, often had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to it. But again, I think the central question you have to ask is, is the fight for, this goes directly to your question, is the fight for the shape of American life in the next 20 years, is it worth it? Should we be here making this fight? Or is somebody else getting it, doing it better, and that's an alternative? And it's not a love it or leave it point at all, but it is a, you know, but you do have to sort of ask, you know what, I'm frustrated, I hate, you know, people will say, I hate this president, I hate, I can't believe it, Mitch McConnell, ah, you know, everybody goes, all right, I get it, but is it worth the fight? So when you're thinking about that idea of the fight, one of the things that's come up a lot with people is this idea of of wealth in this country. And obviously, the people I cover are the wealthiest people there are in history um, and the wealthiest people in the world, in world history. Um, Nobody's been wealthier than these people. Most of them come from tech. They are unaccountable. Uh, They run companies that they run themselves, that they don't have, that have enormous impact on the population. Are you, do you think, you know, we've been through these times historically. We had Rockefellers, we had Carnegie's, we've had, is this a similar thing or is it just, is it something fresh and new, a sort of a fresh new hell of wealth that is hard to deal with? Or do you see any similarities between them? I think it is a difference of kind to not degree, Uh, partly because if you look at, say, Facebook, mm-hmm. that's a wealth creation engine that has a direct and discernible impact on what people see and therefore what they think. Right. So it's not— William Randolph Hearst. I mean, you could say that, but go ahead. Absolutely. But Hearst 
didn't have the reach mm-hmm. Facebook has. So you've got, and people knew, Hearst also never pretended to be above politics. Mm-hmm. He never, uh, you know, he was a partisan who you knew where he was coming from. Right, uh, more Rupert Murdoch. Yes, precisely. Uh, that's exactly the analogy. Um, and press barons who have points of view are, again, perennial. What interests me about Facebook is they are, in fact, purveyors of partisan information, but pretend not to be. Mm-hmm. And they're not willing to exercise the most basic kind of editorial judgment. That's not what John D. Rockefeller did. Mm-hmm. That's not what J.P. Morgan did. That's not what Carnegie did. They were building things that affected American life uh, in incredibly important ways, but they weren't in every American's pocket or in their lives every day. And so that is that is different, and that is a vast, unaccountable empire out there. So, yeah, I think that does require, and what it requires is an informed and discerning citizenry. Can you get 80% of that? Probably not. But if you can get 20, 25% of people who are able to make the right, you know, make a judge, make an informed call, that's probably a, a rational expectation. And will their will their impact have an effect on history? Like how is history how would you how would you for example cover how uh, Trump has used Twitter or how Facebook has been influenced by the Russians or whatever. Oh, I th- yeah, absolutely it's affected history. I mean, the, the we'll be studying the 2016 election forever because of mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if in fact Russian disinformation in an election that close, if it moved a vanishingly small number of votes, yeah, it changed the course of the presidency. And people like me sometimes get criticized for we spend too much time thinking about presidents. It's the mm-hmm. people, et cetera. Sure. Okay. Well, I submit to you that the last three months have shown that studying the president matters. Yeah. So how different would the world be if Hillary Clinton had carried the states she should have carried? I don't mean should, I don't mean to get into that debate, but that, yeah. that she wanted to carry. And so it would have been incredibly different. So yeah, if Facebook was a tool for shifting some votes in an incredibly close election, absolutely, it, it matters. And we'll have to study it forever. And lastly, I want to talk, one of the things you've talked about, and you haven't talked about in a while, is this, you had written the book on Jackson and others. If you had to compare sort of what history we're in right now compared to a previous time in history, would you pick the Jackson era? I, I don't think I would from reading your book because he was much more complex. He was. And, and, he, and intelligent than Well, Trump, by the for time, sure. yeah, by the time Jackson... Awful as he was in the things he did. Okay. Uh, but as the by the time he got to power, he had been a prosecutor, a judge, a senator twice, a congressman, a general. Um, he had also, most importantly accepted the verdict in 1824 when he had won the popular vote, but the election had to go to the House. He immediately branded it a corrupt bargain and ran against John Quincy Adams for four years, but he did it from Tennessee. You know, he didn't summon an army. He didn't, you know, try to disrupt the uh, the ordinary acts of governance. No, I, to me, we are in 
a, a period from about 1915 to 1930. Uh, I think we're in the, where the Klan was refounded uh, in 1915 because of anti-immigration. Uh, there were five governors who were members of the Klan in the 1920s. 1924 Democratic National Convention went to 103 ballots because there were 347 Klan delegates at Madison Square Garden. And they wouldn't vote for Al Smith, the governor of New York, because Smith was an Irish Catholic. Um, seven senators, 30 members of the House. There were 50,000 Klansmen marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1925. In the midst of that, suffrage passes. World War I globalizes uh, and creates this, um, really the world we know, and the decade ends with the Depression. So I, I'm more that we're a, where we were 100 years ago. Uh, new technology, uh, the radio became widely commercially available in the uh, early 20s. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we are. So how yeah. does it end, John? How does the story end? Well, it ended with Franklin Roosevelt. Oh. Right? It ends with... Who's that, Who's that then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Is it Biden? Is it, uh, you know, is it the next generation of Democratic politicians? I. But it was a damn close-run thing, as Wellington yeah. said of Waterloo. And yeah. But that's the whole thing, right? I mean, Lincoln barely got a Lincoln won 38% of the popular vote. This gets us all the way back. FDR, 40% of the country never voted for him. Uh, I understand the natural human inclination to want the past to have been a simpler and easier time. But I think that does two things that are worth avoiding. One is it doesn't give proper credit to the people who fought and lived and died to create a more perfect union, one. And two, if it was all so simple, then there are fewer lessons for us to draw from it. That is a great way to end, John. It's not Twitter's fault, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> I think Twitter's a symptom, not a cause, but I yeah. may be wrong. You know, look, this is this is my this is one man's opinion. Yeah. They don't have to go to work now, I don't case you're interested. I don't know if you read about that. Oh, that's good. They they declare that nobody at Twitter has to go to work anymore. Anyway, John, I really appreciate it. It's great to get a longer term perspective, and I really do look forward to, to your next dork uh, book coming out. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. again, John has a new podcast besides his many, many books of which you should read, and I really am reading all of them at once. Um Hope Through History is his new podcast, and you can get that wherever you get podcasts. So you can tell us about that in a second, John. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. John, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at, at Jay Meacham on the evil Twitter. Yeah, you're good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, johnmeacham.com and wherever dork products are sold. Exactly. If you like this episode, we'd appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie, and special thanks to squadcast.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots. So you find the right thing to watch every time. 
With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at HBOMax.com.